Welcome to our 23rd class. We will review question 22 together, and then we'll learn question 23 together. You learned 22? And 23? You're already a week ahead? Nice job, Titus. Okay, let's pray and we'll get started. Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us here today under your grace, and we ask that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do today, so incline our hearts toward you even this morning as we come to this class, and then we worship together in our service today. We pray that the things that we learn now and the scriptures that we read now would help us to worship you today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let's do a bit of review. We'll back up to question 18 and review some questions together. Question 18, will God allow our disobedience and idolatry to go unpunished? Say it with me. No, every sin is against the sovereignty, holiness, and goodness of God and against His righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them in His just judgment, both in this life and in the life to come. Question 19, is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes, to satisfy His justice, God Himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to Himself and delivers us from sin and from the punishment for sin by a Redeemer. Was that Titus that said, uh-huh? <laughs> I asked the question, his answer was, uh-huh. <laughs> Good job. Question 20, who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. And question 21, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. And that brings us to the question and answer we memorized this past week. Let's say it once together. Question 22, why... Must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, He might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. And also that He might sympathize with our weaknesses. Okay, any of our young people want to try and answer that question? Question 22. Titus, stand up. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? Nice job, Titus. Right here it comes. Nice catch. Okay, Alexander, why must the Redeemer be truly human?
Nice job, Alexander. I don't know if you can hear how excited Alexander is when he does it, but you can hear him inhale. Do you guys hear that in between? It's great. Okay, Stella, why must the Redeemer be truly human? Nice job, Stella. Here you go. Okay, anyone else? This side of the room, three. This side of the room, zero. Anyone? Okay, let's say it one more time together. Question 22. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? That in human nature, He might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also that He might sympathize with our weaknesses. And that brings us to this morning, question 23. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? So 21, 22, and 23, you see how these fit together. In question 21, we learn that the sort of Redeemer that is needed is one who is truly human and also truly God. And the following two questions are breaking that down. Question 22 is answering the question, well, why does the Redeemer need to be truly human? We memorized that last week. And now this week we're going to learn the other side of that coin. Why must the Redeemer be truly God? And here's the answer. Let's say it together. That because of His divine nature, His obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. And the young kids can memorize that because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. That's the kernel of this answer. That's the most important thing for us to know. Let me read you a couple of scriptures. The first one is in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. God raised him, and that is Jesus. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Acts 2, 24 says that God raised Jesus from the dead. He released him from the pain and the suffering, the intense pain and suffering of death. And one of the reasons he did that, the reason we're told in Acts 2.24, is because it was impossible for death to hold on to Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus, if the Redeemer was only truly human, would it be impossible for death to keep its hold on him? No. No. You're only truly human. I'm only truly human. This is what is distinct about our Redeemer. He was not merely a human being. He was also truly God. And God ultimately cannot be killed and stay dead. Death cannot keep its hold on him. So Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because 
it was not possible for him, that is Jesus, to be held by it. And it refers to death. Here's another verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 56. Some of you are familiar with this verse. These verses. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And here's the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's a great image. Death is swallowed up. Swallowed up. In victory. O death, Avery, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, O death, where is your victory? It's not there. There is no victory ultimately for death. O death, where is your sting? It's not there. The sting of death has been taken. The victory of death has been taken because it is through the Lord Jesus Christ that you and I have this victory. So let me read you um, a few more verses. These were quoted by uh, Leo Schuster, who is one of the commentators, one of two, this week for the catechism. The first thing what he quotes is from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, and then verse 14. And these are just a few verses that make it very clear that the Redeemer, that Jesus was and is truly God. So John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. Now the Word, the Logos, is another term that is used for the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God, who has always existed. Right? God has always existed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have the eternal Son of God. And when Jesus was born, that was the eternal Son of God incarnate. That was the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh. That was the eternal Son of God coming to earth and being born as a baby boy to grow up and become a man. But Jesus didn't come into existence. The eternal Son of God didn't come into existence when Jesus was born. He had has always existed. And another name given to the eternal Son of God is the Word. He is the Word. Think of Jesus as being the, the member of the Trinity through whom God speaks. Through whom God reveals Himself is Jesus. So the Word in John 1 is referring to Jesus. Referring to the technically the eternal Son of God. So now listen to John 1, 1. In the beginning, now when else have you heard those three words? One other place. In, 
Yeah, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And where in your Bible is that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So the very beginning. So in the beginning, so we're talking about creation, before creation, was the Word. And who is the Word? Yes, the eternal Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. He was there. And the Word was God. So the eternal Son of God was with God the Father. Not only that, He was God. Right? This is the Trinity. Three distinct persons, and yet they are all one God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When did that happen? When did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? Yeah, Christmas. Yeah, upon the birth of Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and now we have seen His glory through His life, through His death, through His resurrection. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the Redeemer was truly God. John 1, 1 and verse 14. Paul also wrote about this. Paul says in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9, for in Him, and who's the Him? It's Jesus. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So in the body of Jesus, and only in the body of Jesus, He was truly human, had a body like you and me. In the body of Jesus, we're told by Paul in Colossians, dwelt the whole fullness. Those are two exhaustive words. The whole fullness of deity dwelt. Deity refers to God. Jesus himself several times affirmed his divinity and that he was the only one who came from the Father and was with the Father. John 10.33, and this happened on several occasions, the, many of the Jews, this is why they hated Jesus. This is why they were angry with Jesus because, John 10.33, you, they said to him, being a man, make yourself God. You, being a man, he was obviously a man, make yourself God. You act like God. What was the, the big thing that, that Jesus claimed to do that only God can do, do you remember, that, that offended them? Well, there could be maybe a few answers to that. Forgive sin. Forgive sin. Only God is able to forgive sin. So here comes Jesus being obviously, they said, a man. You being a man, you make yourself God, John 10, 33. You talk as if you're God. And why did Jesus talk as if he was God? Because he was God. And when they said that, when they said in their anger, you, you're obviously a man 
but you make yourself out to be God, did Jesus ever correct them? No. He didn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. I didn't mean to give that impression. I didn't mean to communicate that. I didn't mean to give you the impression that I'm God. Now, that would have saved him a lot of trouble, wouldn't it? Yeah, I'll stop talking like that. I'll, I'll stop doing things that only God can do. I'll stop performing these miracles. I'll stop having you worship me and calling you to worship me. I'll stop telling you that I'm the only way to get to the Father. I'll, 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 I'll stop claiming to be able to forgive sins. No, he didn't do any of that. He couldn't do any of that because he was truly God. He acted in accordance with his nature as a human being. And as God. And then finally, last scripture we'll read this morning. The book of Revelation describes Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. Like the eternal beginning and the eternal end. Like the, the very beginning and the very end. There actually is no beginning. There is no end. But Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. And then Revelation 1.8 says this, that Jesus, it describes him as the one who was and is and is to come. He was the eternal Son of God. He is, he walked the face of the earth, and he is to come. He's going to return. So all these scriptures and so many more clearly point out that Jesus was truly, truly God. And this question answers for us why he had to be truly God. And here's Leo Schuster's answer reflecting this answer. Our sin was committed against God. Ultimately, all our sins that we sin against one another Right? We sin against our friends. We sin against our family. Uh, we sin against people in our church. Okay? We sin against people a lot. But every time we sin against someone else, we're also sinning against God. He was one that told us not to do that. We also and often sin only against God. But our sin was committed against God. So therefore, only God can forgive a sin against himself. If you sin against God, I can't forgive you for that. Someone else can't forgive you for that. A priest can't forgive you for that. Only God can forgive you of that. This is why some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day were horrified when he said that he forgave sins. They understood the implications of what he said. How could a mere man forgive the sin we have against God? And the answer, of course, is a mere man cannot. Only God can. So the Redeemer needs to be truly God. Jesus needed to be fully human. We learned this last week in order to be our substitute. But he needed to be fully God in order for his obedience and suffering to be perfect and for God's justice to be completely and eternally satisfied, which is this word effective here. So let me just read this one more time and then we'll read it together. 
Why must the Redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective, and also that he would be able to bear the righteous anger of God against sin and yet overcome death. Because remember, Acts 2.24, it is impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray again that you would sink this truth deeply into our hearts and that we would be changed by it. That we would be humbled to know that God became man on our behalf. That God is willing to die for our sin. That God is willing to suffer himself for his people. That God is willing then on the basis of that sacrifice and our faith to forgive us. To let go of our sin. To not hold one of them against us. To remove our sin from us. To purify us. To cleanse us. So we give you thanks and praise and glory and honor. Thank you for sending your son to be truly human and yet truly God so that we could be saved, forgiven of our sin. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.